You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. So we are actually in the last of our series today, Justified, How God Meant Broken People in a Broken World. And we're um, at the beginning of this series, a whole, what, 13 weeks ago, can you imagine? Um, 13 weeks ago, we started off at the end of the letter. And we started off at the end to know where things were going. And we started off at the end and we realized that the whole book of Romans was written to a specific context and a specific time to about, oh, I would say five to eight house churches in Rome. We discovered that, that two huge issues were going on in these churches in Rome, and they were power and privilege was being used against each other rather than for each other. And there were divisions between Gentiles and Jews, between slaves and free, between men and women, but that the gospel of justification that Paul proclaimed in this letter, it was the power of God, and it was the power to bring about a whole new status and a whole new way of being and to mend broken people, broken relationships, even a broken world. And today, we end where we began. With the divisions that Paul lays out here in Romans chapter 14 and 15, he lays out specifically the divisions, as he calls them, between the weak and the strong, and how we now put in practical terms are to live for the sake of others rather than for the sake of ourselves. So we're going to read Romans 15, 1 through 7. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may have one voice, with one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Now, as I mentioned at the beginning of, or I think last week, uh, the Roman church in five or eight households, somewhere in that number, small groups, probably about the size of uh, Thrive itself. So there's only in a city of probably a million people, the center of power, the center of privilege, we have five to eight small house churches uh, growing and working together and yet struggling with the same issues their whole society faced and also struggling with issues that their society pinned on them. For instance, in 49 AD, like I mentioned last week, Claudius, the emperor, expelled all the Jews from Rome. I'm not exactly sure why, but he chose to get rid of all of them out of Rome at that point in time. And that included those who were Jewish Christians, because they didn't distinguish between them at that time. And so we find out in Acts 18 that Priscilla and Aquila actually left Rome at that time, and Paul met them. Now, the good news, I guess, is that about 54 AD, Claudius is no more. 
and the Jews started to come back to Rome. And in fact, many of them returned, such a contingent that it could have caused problems itself. Simon Garther Cole, in an article that I read this week, shared what probably this all meant with this influx again of Jewish Christians. He writes, so the Jewish contingent returns to a church which had for some years been almost exclusively Gentile. And it is easy to imagine how such a sudden change in the ethnic makeup of the churches would give rise to, or at least, very least, exacerbate the contentious nature of the issues. You know, churches love new members in the abstract. Um, we love them, we want them, we say we love them, we want them, but in the concrete it can be kind of difficult sometimes, especially when they come in large numbers and they come all at once and then all of a sudden it changes everything and it upsets the apple cart. Um, when I was a pastor out in uh, Visalia, California, in the Central Valley, I was a pastor of a church that had a few hundred members and there was one family in our midst from Southeast Asia, Joseph and Maria Kiovale. And I wasn't quite sure who, you know, where they came from or what their story was, but when I got to know Joseph and Maria and their children, I found out that Joseph was from the hill tribe in Southeast Asia called Lahu Si. You will probably never meet somebody from Lahu Si tribes, let me tell you, because this was a minority of minorities. Their language had still not been written. Okay, It was one of those languages that a Bible translator was trying to write down. But Joseph and Maria, Joseph actually had been a soldier that was recruited by the CIA during the Vietnam War era from Laos, because that's where he had lived. And they were used by the CIA as part of our war effort in Southeast um, Asia. And when, of course, we left Vietnam, we also abandoned all of these hill tribes. And some of them you know or may have heard of, like the Hmong, or the Mien, or the Lisu, or the Aka. I found out when I learned about them that there were like a dozen or more hill tribes, and each of them had a little separate groups as well. But it was like, what is going on here? Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands had to flee for their lives from Laos crossed the Mekong River, ended up as refugees in Thailand, and finally, in a couple of decades, the United States welcomed them into the United States as refugees from that war. And Joseph and Maria and the family had been brought in through an immigration and refugee service, a Christian one, and they decided they were going to join a Christian church as a result. And they joined ours. Well, I met with them, and it was like, well, this is great. And then we met where they lived. And all of a sudden, we found out there were dozens of Lahu families. In fact, what was fascinating, that in that town, 3,000 Lahu Seas were living, the only large population of this ethnic group anywhere in the United States. And all of a sudden, I had a few members, and we started reaching out and ministering to them. And we ended up, in a short order, with 100 Lahusi members, and I think I've got a picture of what they dress up like on their New Year's celebration. And they brought in, and we started a Lahu sp uh, spoken uh, service. I started training a couple of young, uh, young men. Um, they don't dress like this every day. They just dress like this at New Year's, at Christmas, at Thanksgiving. Um, yeah, at Thanksgiving, we slaughter a pig, OK? 
Um, they didn't know anything about turkey. They looked at turkeys and thought they, they called them elephant chickens. I thought that was always funny. It's probably an appropriate name. Anyway, so all of a sudden we have them coming in with their language, with their customs, their culture, into a church where they become 20 to 25% of the congregation overnight. Can you imagine what that brought about in this church? Because they brought in their foods and their music and everything else. I can relate to what Paul is talking about here in Romans 14 and 15 because we had a continuum from a complete embrace, this is God's movement that we're bringing in all these families, to a total fear and uh, feeling threatened by this group taking over our church. So here comes the Jewish Christian contingent back into Rome. They are welcomed sort of into the church. And then all of a sudden we've got what's going on in our text before us. So what do you do when cultures clash? How do you view people with marked differences from you? And how do you look at them and what do you do with them? And you can understand how our text deals with this. Paul says... This is the situation, and love has to be embodied in real life. Otherwise, it isn't love. You can love all you want in the abstract, but the people you need to be loving are those who are here this morning and those who might be here next week and those that we meet out in the street. If you can't love them, you're not loving anybody. You cannot love in the abstract. And even our teaching called uh, the doctrine of justification. This whole theme that we've had from the beginning is not an abstract, theoretical thing. It's real life. And it makes a real difference with how we treat one another and how we come together. So we're going to find out from this passage of Romans chapter 15, verses 1 through 7. Did I read it already? I didn't read it yet, did I? We're going to read it now. What is going on here? Or did I read it? I read it. I read it, didn't I? Uh, I'm on 14 and 15, but I'm going to just be in 15. I know, because uh, it was just too long of a passage. So we're in Romans 15, 1 through 7, okay? So we can understand what was going on, and we're going to learn from this passage today three things. How we are justified to be free. And what that really means, how we are justified to love freely, and finally, how the power of justification, what that brings so that we can love freely, okay? So one of the most important things that the Protestant reformer Martin Luther ever said talks about this being justified to be freed. He wrote a thing called uh, On the Freedom of a Christian, and he wrote this as the thesis of that treatise. A Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none, and a Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all, subject to, a subject of all, subject to all. You look at that and you go like, wait a minute, those two things don't match. You say I'm Lord of all, and yet I'm subject to all? Which, what, it's going... It is a paradox, but he would say those two things are absolutely true. And we're looking at the first one, that you have been justified by Jesus Christ. You have now, through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, been given the full status and stature and power and privilege that Jesus himself has with the Father. 
That's what the book of Romans says. You are absolutely freed. Absolutely freed. And when it comes to many other areas of, the, of your life, then you are freed from all of these superstitions and cultural norms that other people might be all subjected to. And Paul himself knows. He himself had been bound by many of those norms. He had been kind of living a certain way, but he realized that in Romans chapter 14, in verse 14, he says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. All of a sudden, he had been living, I don't know if you realize this, Paul himself had been living as a Pharisee of Pharisees for many years where he would not touch, he would not even get close to anything like any food or any preparation of food that was considered unkosher. He would never even walk into someone's house that was unclean in any form. He would avoid all of those things, keep himself as pure as possible. And when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, he realized... All those things were just a shadow of the reality in Christ. All those things had been transformed and that it was Jesus Christ himself who made him clean, acceptable before God, that there were no other rituals, there were no other ceremonies, there were no other um, processes, no rules that he had to keep to be cleaner before God. He had already received it. That's the gospel of justification. F.F. Bruce summed up, I think, what Paul's view of his freedom very well. He said, Paul enjoyed his Christian liberty to the full. Never was there a Christian more thoroughly emancipated from unchristian inhibitions and taboos. So completely emancipated was he from spiritual bondage that he was not even in bondage to his emancipation. Do you understand what that last phrase is saying? Paul was absolutely free. He realized the freedom of the Christian, that you are Lord of all and slave to none, that you are master of everything. And he was absolutely free, but he was also so free that he was freed from having to use his freedom. He could set aside his freedom at any point in time because he didn't have to be a slave to his freedom of asserting his rights and saying, well, I can do whatever, because it wasn't about him. It was no longer about him his whole life. For to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. It's all about Jesus. So I am so free. I can do whatever I, quote, want. But what do I want to do? I want to please him. And so I'm going to serve others. So he would limit his freedom whenever he needed to. When he was around the Gentiles, he'd be like the Gentiles. When he was around the Jews, he'd be like the Jews, not to fit in, but to be a bridge to build them in faith up to knowing Jesus himself. And so that's why Paul said to the Romans in Romans 15:1, we who are strong, like me, Paul, he would say, have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Now, the Romans, Gentiles, probably understood their freedom quite well. They were strong. They were not filled with superstitions. They didn't have to. They knew that through Christ, they were clean in front of God's eyes. And so they were free to eat whatever was put in front of them. But there were some that had just come back into the church who had been raised up for decades upon decades in the habits and processes that they weren't quite 
you know, the penny hadn't dropped, that they still were caught up into the cultural norms of Jewish society and thought, well, you know what, maybe, but maybe I can eat anything, but maybe it'd be better if I don't. And because they came into Rome, where you couldn't find a kosher butcher if you wanted to, come into a city like Rome where you have no idea how food was prepared, these individuals decided, I'm going to be vegetarian. I'm going to give up all meat because only God knows how it was taken care of. I don't, and I don't want to do anything wrong. Instead of celebrating people's freedoms, both groups were starting to look at each other in the church over cultural issues and judging or despising. Paul writes in Romans 14:3, let not one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Though everyone was justified by grace, the weak were looking at the strong and going like, boy, those people are so secular. They're unspiritual because they're not following the rules. And the strong were looking at the weak going like, those people are so, so superstitious. They're culturally bound. I don't get it. They aren't, don't understand their freedom. And the divisions were there. It's amazing what happens when we start judging each other within the Christian church. And I bet many of you have been in churches where this happens. Probably not over food, but maybe over dress, maybe over music, maybe over cultural appropriation of different things, maybe over television shows, <laughs> definitely over politics. Oh, mercy. And somehow we're thinking that we all, you know, I'm right, of course, and so you, in order to be right, you've got to think like me. And Paul says that's not who to think like. It's not about you. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it well. He said, judging others makes us blind whereas love is illuminating. By judging others, we blind ourselves to our own evil and to the grace which others are just as entitled as we are, to as we are. So you are free. And that's our first point. I am not going to limit your freedom by any means. I'm going to celebrate it. You are free from condemnation. You are free from the consequences of anything that you've done before God. You are freed from any penalty of eternal death. You are free from judgment. You are free from the opinions of other people. You are absolutely free, which means you are also freed from your own opinions, and you are freed from your own selfishness, and you're freed from your own right to your freedom so that you can be free to serve, and you don't have to please yourself. That's Christian freedom. And Paul would say you are freed from all of those things and he'd celebrate it. He wouldn't constrain it, but he would channel it. He would focus what that freedom means. And that's our second point. You are justified and freed to love freely. Paul says in our text, you know, you're free to build them up. You're free to serve. You're freed to please others rather than yourself. And that's why I love that phrase from Martin Luther, that paradoxical statement where he said, a Christian is perfectly free, Lord of all, subject to none. But then he goes on and says, a Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject of all, subject to all. So that I am free, but I choose freely 
to serve, to build others up, to not focus on myself. You know, you may disagree with many people on many things. Mostly cultural issues are where our disagreements are right now in the, in the world. And Paul is not saying that we have to be of the same thinking, like it's group think, and everybody has to like the same music, wear the same kind of clothing, have the same thinking about everything. But he does talk about having a harmony, a unity that transcends the differences that we face. He says in Romans 15.5 in this text, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. You know, what's fascinating about that word that's translated harmony in this text is it's not even close to harmony. Um, it, it's really the word phroneo, which is to have the same mind. It's the word for your mind. It's for your thinking. So it's a metaphor to think of harmony, you know, where, where I'm a third of an octave lower or whatever, right? We're not the same note, but we are something that works together. That is the thinking behind this. But this understanding of the same mind comes up elsewhere in the New Testament. Paul talks about this to all of his churches. In Philippians, his favorite church, by the way, that gave and gave and gave, he even tells them in Philippians 2, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy of being the same mind. And then he defines that, having the same love. Being a full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourself. So to really be in harmony is not like you and I like the same foods or like the same music or dress the same way or watch the same TV shows or have the same exact political philosophies. No. We can have all those things being very different. And in fact, I am praying and hoping that our church is composed of people from all sorts of backgrounds. And not just simply um, like out in California where it was the La Housie coming into a predominantly white church. But that we have many backgrounds and we go like, praise God. We can praise God. Because guess what? You're going to have to get used to it. You're spending an eternity not only with me, but with a billion other people in this world from all sorts of backgrounds and persuasions, okay? You know, all sorts of things that are going to go on in eternity. And if you don't get used to it now, well, I guess God will transform you to be used to it and celebrate it then. But to have that harmony means that we can disagree, but I can support you. I can pray for you. I can love you. In fact, love is never for, <laughs> you don't love, you like the things that you like. That's of similar. You love those who are different than you. That's the beauty of marriage. Most marriages, I mean, I don't know of any spouses here who, you didn't marry your clone, right? You married someone who complimented you, probably, but who's very different, and boy, are there differences that come up, and you have to, you, boy, do you grow in love, right? And then you have children, and Johnny's at age one now. He's, you know, wait till he starts talking back to you, right? 
and it just keeps going and going, right? And boy, it's like, how did this come from the same gene pool? I don't know. That's the question. But you love that which is different than you, not that which is similar to you. You like the similar. You love the different. That's what's amazing to me about it. To have harmony, to be of the same mind. And you might say, John, right now, that sounds good, but it ain't happening in America. I'd have, um, everyone is acting like they're the strong in this text, and they're asserting, asserting their rights and saying, I am free to do whatever, blah, 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 I want, right? And everyone is pushing their own agendas. It's all power plays. It's all privilege. We're using it in the wrong way. And I look at our leadership across the board, and there aren't any real models for you right now in the media to follow. But you know what? Christians at the time of Rome and any time have never looked to society in general, to the leadership in that society, to find their model for how to live. They've never looked to some political figure or some Hollywood celebrity or some media mogul or some sports star or some business tycoon and said, that's the way I want to live. Christian, Paul never said, you better be like. He said, and he focused on, we look to Jesus Christ alone. Have this mind that Christ himself has had. And that brings us to how in the world do we have the power to do this? It's not by trying to emulate the world outside. I think it's time to stop. We need to be different than the world outside right now, more than ever. It's time to start focusing on who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And that's our third point, the power to love freely, the power of your justification. You were justified. And that was not, as we've talked about, like a snap of God's fingers where he just made a decision and said, okay, this is what's going to happen. I've just changed everything. It's not out of his omnipotence that he does this. It's out of his compassion and mercy on this world that he sends his own son into this world to justify us. And it comes through the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ himself. What you are called to do in this passage, to have the same mind, to bear with one another, to welcome one another, to accept one another, to love one another is only a smidgen of what Jesus has already done and continues to do for you. When Paul says have the same mind, he's really talking about having the mind of Christ. And this comes up as well in that Philippians passage where it says in Philippians 2, 5 to 7, have this mind among yourselves, who is in yours, in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grabbed onto, grasped, but he empties himself and he takes on the form of a servant. Do you realize Jesus gave up all his freedoms, all his power, all his privilege, and he becomes a slave, a servant for your sake? He empties himself of all of that. He binds himself to your sin. He dies upon the cross. When you are called to serve others, it's only because Jesus has already served you completely. And when Paul tells us to bear with those who are weak as he starts off this passage, 
realize when we were weak, in Romans chapter 5, it says when we were absolutely powerless, that's when Christ Jesus dies for us. He put up with, he patiently bore with disciples who would not listen to him, who would not follow him, who didn't understand him, who would contradict him at times. He bore with them. He carried them along with him. And then he also bore with the hurting and the suffering and the ailing. Matthew chapter 18 shares a passage about this. In the middle of his public ministry where Jesus was healing the sick and the infirmed and welcoming and feeding the thousands, right, and doing all of these ministries, Matthew says this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. And that's a quote out of Isaiah chapter 53 that leads to the point where a suffering, sacrificial servant gives up his entire life for the world. So Jesus does all this for you. My response is a free response of the fact that I have been fully served. My sins have been born. I have been completely given everything from Jesus. When I was weak, when I was helpless, when I was ungodly, I was justified. How can I not then respond and, you know, bearing with others, loving others, serving others, and realizing we have unity and a oneness in Christ that far transcends all our cultural differences. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, said it this way and in his uh, book, Life Together. He said, Jesus Christ lived in the midst of his enemies. At the end of his dis- At the end, all his disciples deserted him. On the cross, he was utterly alone, surrounded by evildoers and mockers. For this cause, he had come to bring peace to the enemies of God. So the Christian, too, belongs not in the seclusion of a cloistered life, but in the thick of foes. This is his commission, his work. Our goal is not at Thrive to kind of circle the wagons and huddle together and hold off the world. Our goal is not to um, only find people who think like we do on all sorts of issues. Our goal is to love others, to speak God's truth, to encourage and build up others, to have the same mind that Christ had, which meant we go out of this world and serve this world even when they don't want to be served. We go out into this world and we care about this world and we love and we bear with this world, patiently enduring a lot of stuff in this world right now for the sake of this world, just like Jesus did. You know, it's good when a church has people who have differing viewpoints. It's good because our unity is not found in that you think like me or I think like you, but that we start thinking more like Jesus. Justified. How God mends broken hearts in a broken world. Let's pray. Lord God, this day we are um, astounded again at what you did for us. Why you would put up with us. Why you'd welcome us. Like you welcome sinners and tax collectors and then were rejected and judged as a result by the religious, Lord. That you'd put up with us and do so much for us. We are amazed at that. And therefore, you melt our hearts and change us so that we can love one another, that we can be of that mind that you have, that we can show this world here in our fellowship, Lord, 
that um, all the things that would separate and divide don't need to here. And that power and privilege don't have to be used against each other, but we can use whatever power we have, whatever privilege we are given, whatever position in our society and in our world that we have, Lord, to serve you, to completely serve you, and to serve others, Lord, in your name. We do lift up some of those who are right now are struggling in our midst, Lord, in our congregation. We lift up to you Andy and Jeff Blankenship. They're up at Moffat today in the midst of this clinical trial, Lord. We pray for your healing work on her life that goes well beyond what all the oncologists and doctors who they're going to see today and tomorrow, Lord, that they'll be astounded at what's going on and they realize it's come from your hand, that she is able to glorify and witness to you. And Lord, we pray for that. We pray for your will to be done. We commend them into your care. We place Kai, we place Chris, Rodriguez. We place uh, Chris, the Grisky's grandson, into your care. We thank you that you are working your healing work in all of these people's lives, and we pray that you, we build them up. We lift up to you, O Lord, our nation right now that is so divided. And we pray, Lord, that your church would not be a place where those divisions are exacerbated, but rather your church becomes a place where your truth is proclaimed, but your love is so maintained that we're not just strong in our opinions, but we are strong in loving one another as you have loved us. And that we live in that understanding, Lord Jesus. And that the mind that we have here is not my opinions or others' opinions, but our mind is the mind that you give us, Lord Jesus, the mind that you had in how you lived your life, the mind, the heart of a servant. We pray, Lord God, that you would bless this day and this week, that it would be a week of thanksgiving, not just a day, and it wouldn't be about necessarily the food or even the family that can or cannot gather, but it's about your presence in our life, and we're going to give you thanks no matter what. And we pray for that humility during this time as well, Lord, that we aren't so uh, filled with ourselves and our agendas, but we let them go and ask for your agenda, your will to be done in our lives. Lord God, as we prepare our hearts and our minds to receive um, your supper in just a few moments, where you give us, Lord, again, and serve us completely yourself, where we are amazed on that night when you would be betrayed that you would do this, Lord, that you would open our hearts and our lives, that the gift would not simply be to remember what you did, Lord, but that we would uh, be transformed by it to love one another and trust you even more fully. So bless that time as well, Lord, and bless us. And all these things we pray, Lord Jesus, in your name, because of what you have done, that we do have freedom in you, Lord Jesus, that you have given us so graciously and lovingly your status and everything that you have earned um, so that we can stand before the Father as those who are righteous because that your righteousness covers us. It is in your name we pray these things. Amen.